What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. My guest today is the award-winning writer and journalist Prachi Gupta. We're going to talk about her debut memoir, They Called Us Exceptional, and other lies that raised us. Now, I love this book, and it was not about what I thought it was going to be about. Yes, it's about cultural identity and family trauma and this idea of the model minority myth and how it's dangerous. But to me, it's about a mother-daughter relationship familiar relationships that are so complicated and bound by love. But what do you do when that love also comes along with violence and such sadness? So how does love and sadness live together? And what does that do to a family? So Prachi was a senior reporter at Jezebel. She won a Writers Guild Award for an essay called Stories About My Brother. This essay won many, many awards, and it was attempting to understand the circumstances of her brother's death and the very, very mysterious circumstances he left behind. We'll mention this essay in our conversation, so I just want you to remember it, to reference it. Prachi also covered the 2016 election for Cosmopolitan.com, where she had a run-in with Ivanka Trump in an interview that went viral that prompted Trump to call her a non-intelligent reporter, which doesn't even make sense. She's written everywhere. I'm not going to list them. I hope you really enjoy this conversation. It's a tender one. The book is so full of surprises that I don't want to give them away. I just want you to read the book. Enjoy. Firstly, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. As you will know, listeners, I often leave the end of the book 
to read, you know, in the hour or so before I see my beautiful guest in person, just to have it kind of resonate. And in this case, I just feel like I'm kind of breathless and feel like I need to kind of have a cry in a way, because obviously the best literature brings up, makes us reflect on our own lives and experiences, but through this other lens, which is your lens, which is certainly not mine as a white Australian woman within an American experience. Um, So we are here to talk about your book called They Called Us Exceptional and Other Lies That Raised Us. Something you say in the book is that you felt like at many points in your life you questioned your sanity. How are you feeling? How are you grounding yourself at the moment, um, anticipating a book that is very revealing about your family and yourself? First of all, thank you for reading the book and so thoughtfully. Um, uh, it's a it's a question I've been thinking about a lot. You know, the the way it sort of feels like is I'm I'm sort of standing on a cliff and I'm jumping and <laughs> taking this leap of faith and I don't really know what I'm about to land on and what what is down there. But my my aunt, I was talking to my aunt about all of this just last night and she she helped me reframe. She said, well, maybe you're not standing at the edge of a cliff, you're, you're approaching a peak and you don't really know what you're going to see or what what's on the other side of that. And that helped me think about it a little bit differently. Um, I think... This process of, I think, writing a book for anyone who's, you know, excavating their own story, it can be deeply isolating and alienating. So you you work really, it's really internal internal work. It comes from this place of truth, this place of that is you. But the second you put it out there for the world to consume, it's everybody else's. And that vulnerability is really scary. And it's that loss of control over our own stories in a way. But I'm putting it out there because I... I believe that my story can help other people um, feel less alone in their own experiences and help them articulate some of the confusion and trauma and disorienting experiences um, that so many of us have and deal with alone. It's it's scary, but it's exciting, and um, I'm not really sure what, what to expect, so I'm trying to ground myself in the reality that the the real accomplishment for me is that I was able to write a story, and I think in a way that did my truth um, and my experiences justice. And at the end of the day, that's all I can hope for. That's the only part of it I can control. There was a line in the book that I highlighted, and it's which speaks to what you're talking about. And it says, "I am a writer, and I have to write about my life to make peace with the past." As I was reading the book and learning more about your career, I had a sense that you had to write to almost move forward with your life. Does that feel truthful for t- to you? And if so, tell us a bit about the journey to becoming a writer because I know that was not part of the plan and not part of your family's plan for you. Absolutely. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. I... I had to write this book 
if I was ever going to move forward in my life, if I was ever going to do anything else in my life. I resisted it for a very long time. <laughs> uh, but you're right, it kept cropping up in my work and in, in themes in my work, in smaller essays that I wrote, and even in my journalism and what I chose to cover and how I chose to cover it. In the book, there's a moment early on where I talk about my this, this deep knowing inside me at the age of um, about six or seven, and I was sitting in a library and we were learning about the Dewey Decimal System. And I have this distinct memory of the librarian pointing to a wall of books and saying, well, one day one of us might have a book there. And I remember in that moment that she was, it felt like she was talking specifically to me. And I remember that everything else sort of faded away. And I looked at that wall of books and I said to myself, like, yeah, I'm going to have a book up there one day. So, you know, I don't know where that desire came from. But even at that age, I felt as if there was something in my, like, linked to my survival about telling stories and understanding my own and writing and an art in general, because I painted a lot as well. And that sort of creative expression... Um, which I think is is sort of intrinsic to us as humans and, and, and part of such a vital part of our humanity is this ability to create and express. And I think for me, the struggle was in a society and in a culture where we're not often encouraged to embrace our authenticity. Instead, we're raised to learn how to achieve, to learn how to belong, to learn how to fit into very specific and narrow expectations and societal norms, it can be really hard to embrace that authentic self that I think we all have as children. Um, and so my struggle was finding a way to do that and believing that I had a right to do that as an adult. The pressures were re being raised in, in a more conservative immigrant household where, you know, Choosing the arts is not uh, stability. It's the opposite of stability. And, and I didn't know anyone else who did that. And I didn't know anyone in my ethnic community who did that either. It was not meant for girls like me to, to dream about. So that was one of the blockages to overcome. And I think the other was just also familial pressure to fit into my family's expectation of what is a respectable career path. I tried really hard to do that. I got that management consulting job. I was engaged to a doctor. <laughs> At the moment when I felt like I had everything that I was supposed to have, I was just clearly so unhappy. And I saw how everyone around me was so unhappy too. So this thing that was supposed to make me so happy um, didn't. And it, it almost felt like an existential crisis. Well, so now what? So I knew then that Again, that voice inside me said, this isn't it. And I needed to go and figure out, you know, I didn't know if writing or art could help me feel more at peace, but I knew that what, was, what I was doing wasn't working and I had to go try. So It's always interesting when, you know, a person has to start to distance themselves from their family and you have to kind of make a decision. What am I going to take from them what strings will be attached to certain help. Can you describe that year and how you summoned inner confidence to go on and what bites made you feel like I'm on to something? Yeah. So I quit my management consulting job in 2011. I, I sort of laid out what I wanted to try to accomplish within the next five years, which was essentially 
get paid to be a writer. I would have been happy being a copywriter at an ad agency. I just wanted to get paid to put words to paper and work with people who were more like-minded. So other people who were equally passionate about writing and the arts, a place where I could create a community. So those were, those were my two goals, which don't actually sound insurmountable, but it felt impossible because I didn't have the access to that world. It was a really strange year. One of my best friends from college, she, she's, she was a working journalist and she still is, Marin Kogan. She introduced me to um, some friends who were at a new media startup and I interned there. It didn't really pay and I got laid off at the end of the summer, but I made some really incredible connections there. Some people who I could still consider friends today. Then Marin introduced me to a few friends or a friend who worked at Gawker. And I said I was serious about journalism, about an internship. And they said, okay, why don't you apply? I sent my application in and they wanted me to write about 500 words about my management consulting experience. And they were really more interested in my experiences and my perspective than my, than my pedigree or my my background. And you know, it took me three full days to write those 500 words. That got me in the door. And I still remember the moment I jumped up on my bed. I was literally jumping on the bed, <laughs> just alone in my apartment in Manhattan. And because I knew then that I had, I'd got a foot in the door. At the end of that summer, I applied for a job at a different website and I got it. And then after that point on, I was able to call myself a journalist. And, and I think the things that, you know, there were a lot of periods in that year though, where I felt like giving up or I felt like I'm a failure or what's the point. I spent a full month just watching the show Lost. <laughs> and it, it was like, several years after everyone had seen it. So when the finale came, I was really angry and I had no one to talk about it with. Um, and I just remember feeling like I, I gave up a really good job to, to do what? To fail, to, to be nothing. And it was just the voices of all the people who've put me down in my life, like coming back really intensely and really strong. And in those moments, I, I went to friends. I went to like friends like Marin. I went to people who had always supported me, who had always told me, no, we know that you're capable of this. Like, don't give up. And I knew that if I didn't really try, if I didn't really stick with this, I would always live with that regret. When I was in the consulting world, it was such a mismatch for me and my personality. I had to suppress who I really was. And, I, and, and that inner turmoil, I mean, I was, I was severely depressed. I wasn't me. And I knew that I couldn't go back to not being me. So I had to give being me a shot, even though I didn't even know what that fully meant. And um, no matter where I ended up, I would at least be better off knowing that I tried. I'm so glad that I stayed with it. Well, there's something about instinct, isn't there? Or intuition that knows you have to stick with it. And I was just thinking around that same period in my life, like 25, 26 was a huge turning point of trying to be a writer as well and getting those clips. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that Door was about something you'd actually gone and done, you know, a job you didn't like anymore. Right. Which I feel once you're kind of in the writing world, you understand that we're all looking for stories that have nothing to do with media. Right. But somehow when you're on the way, you forget that life experience is actually interesting and what 
you know, gives you multiple perspectives to write from. Absolutely. So much of your book is about examining the patriarchy and very specifically from the South Asian point of view. Um, But you also, prior to writing the book, worked at a place we both worked at, Cosmopolitan Magazine. You were at the website. I was at the, the print version quite a few years before you were. Can you tell us about coming on board just before the 2016 election? Because I feel that on reflection, that time was so chaotic. And uh, what was it like to be literally on the front lines of those discussions? You know, I remember very distinctly the year ahead, um, you know, there was there was this excitement working at one of the most visible women's magazines in the world. And at a time when we all believed that America was about to elect its first female president. And then Donald Trump emerges as the front runner for the presidential uh, in the presidential primary. And I remember feeling so angry that this this was the candidate. It, it, it almost felt like parody, like like this is satire. This is not real life. And I think that was a that was a, a really common sense amongst a lot of progressive, amongst a lot of uh, women voters. Um, and then as that year continued, we began to see that it, you know, it, it, this is not this is not a joke. This is real, and this candidate has a lot of support. Donald Trump um, ignited something across America for a huge swath of people, even as a political reporter, to take seriously the possibility that Donald Trump would become president. And in retrospect, that was very naive. I remember being in the Javits Center that night, and um, there were in the room full of reporters. And when at 9 p.m., when we realized that it was pretty much impossible for Hillary Clinton to become the the winner as we saw the electoral college votes come in, um, you know, people started crying and I was standing outside. Like my, my assignment that night was to interview Hillary Clinton supporters leaving the Javits Center about this win. <laughs> and, and very quickly we had to pivot and nobody wanted to talk to me. It felt like a funeral procession. And, and it's like, who wants to talk to the person who has a mic, like you know, being shoved in your face, like at a moment like that. Um, but that's exactly what I had to do. And so I was there until, you know, two or 3 AM on, on the street because I had to get uh, at least 10 people to speak to and nobody wanted to talk. Um, and it did not feel good <laughs> to be doing that, but it, you know, it was an important moment and it was important to capture. And I'm glad that we were able to do that. A lot of journalists had been writing about was how the Republican party was about to face a reckoning within, like they were in crisis and, and they were going to have to really re-examine themselves. I had interviewed several Republican like thought leaders and commentators about that very idea. And it was the reverse that happened. Democrats had to start looking within their party and really Republicans had united around Trump and Democrats didn't see that coming. So it was a real moment of reckoning. And I think for me personally, it was a shattering of illusions of what I wanted America to be versus what America really is. And as 
difficult as that was, I also think it is necessary and even a positive thing in the sense that once we understand and face the realities, even if they're bleak, that is what can empower us to actually change them. Because if we're living in the place of denial, then that reality is going to continue as it is, and we're just not going to acknowledge it. But once we acknowledge it, that actually gives us the power to change it. So in the same way that, you know, my book is, is so revolved around sort of the denial, the ways in which we deny our realities or my realities were denied or society denies realities to certain groups of people. I think it's a little heavy or, or ser really serious at times, but my hope is that by being that honest about these realities, it can empower people to also make changes in their lives. I definitely think that witnessing how Trump behaved as a, a man made a lot of us see similar traits in men in our lives that we hadn't really had to face before because you could gloss over them, that it was like turning over the rock and seeing all the worms. Absolutely. It's also about living within an abusive home. And at what point did you recognize that that word abuse, which I think we all don't want to label on people we love so much. When was that awakening happening? When you kind of were able to have a little distance and go, the lang there's language around this, there's literature around this. Like, what are these dynamics that I've absorbed? Yeah. I think that awareness to some extent, it was always there, but I didn't have a language with which to articulate it. And I didn't, I think growing up Indian American, growing up as a brown woman in a very white society and also in a, a, as trying to identify with, you know, culturally not really sure where I fit in, also racially not really sure I, where I fit in. Um, all of these things were pretty isolating. So it was really hard to parse out like, oh, what behavior is cultural? What's normal? What's not? And um, everything that I'd always seen depicted about abuse was very binary. It was like abuse is like physical. It's And, and when someone's abusive, they're only mean to you. Like it, it's, it was just this very, um, honestly, almost like, like cartoonish or extreme, um, portrayal that I think while that that does exist, so many of us, um, as you said, we can be in relationships that are abusive. Like we, we love people who hurt us. And that is a very universal experience, I think. And how do we talk about that in a way that can honor the complexity of somebody we love and also honor um, the ways in which that pain affects us? And I didn't really find a language to talk about that and that also acknowledge the complexity of growing up trying to navigate at least two cultures and um, different sets of values and different communities. So like that, that language really did not exist or rather it did exist, but it was not accessible to me. Um, there is some there is research uh, on, you know, domestic violence in South Asian communities, but it's so hard to access that unless you know about it or you know to look for it. And I 
didn't. It didn't even occur to me because the entire concept of abuse was not something that I saw as applicable to me or my family. Um, when I got out of the family system a bit and when I, um, you know, it was that, that, that summer of liberation when I started, I quit my job, I left my fiance, I started a new job. And finally, I began to ask all these questions. I never wanted to be a rule breaker. I never wanted to be so defiant. I, what I wanted more than anything was just to belong in the system that I was in, but I just couldn't. And so I started asking all these questions about why I couldn't. And that led me to a lot of, really a lot of feminist literature. But I think what I first encountered um, basically because of my environment was white feminist literature. And, it, and, and that um, didn't really acknowledge the dynamics that I'm talking about, uh, cultural conflicts, the, the additional barriers that immigrants and children of immigrants face um, when being able to talk about abuse, when being able to confront abuse, um, when being able to access help. And so I, and part of the reason I wrote this book is again to help create a language around this stuff that's not, that, that reduces some of the stigma and shows the complexity that exists for people who occupy a lot of different identities um, uh, that are marginalized and, and how to begin to think about um, abuse when it involves people that you deeply love and communities that you deeply care about and are invested in and want to stay a part of, but also want to be true to who you are. Well, I think something too about when you're in a situation that shuts you down, we often lose language where you just freeze. It's fight or flight. And there's a there's such a lack of ability to articulate the thoughts and words. Um, and I think what your book did was it gave sentences that were so beautifully accurate to what goes on in the mind and in the experience that feels like a gift because you've done the work with your eloquence to give words to feelings that many of us can't still put words to. It's difficult to talk about these things, so thank you for being so open. Throughout the book, you're talking to your mother. Mm -hmm. And I found that um, incredibly moving and frustrating at times, but it really brought us into your point of view, but then to similarly think about her perspective. Did you write the book thinking this will help me get things out on the page if I'm trying to explain my story to my mother who I love? Yeah, so the essay and mentioning my brother's death, which was sort of a huge catalyst for all this, I, I heard from so many people about how this essay helped them have conversations with family members. I heard from South Asian moms who had no idea what their kids might be going through and saying, we're going to start talking about your mental health. I heard from siblings who were currently estranged from their, from their brothers mostly, and this essay gave them a way to begin to, to think about that estrangement differently and even try to bridge that gap and with more compassion. And then, and then I heard from men too, men who had gone down a similar path that my brother had gone down and um, saying that your essay stopped me from going further down that and helped me change. 
And it was absolutely incredible to hear that. Um, and it made me realize the power of, of being seen, of, of having words to be able to articulate our own experiences that feel right with, within us. And so that is really what motivated me to tell my full story and write the book. Um, but when I began writing it, I didn't know how to write what I wanted to write. And I realized that after my brother's death, the person that I wanted to connect with most was my mom. And I didn't know how to talk to her. I knew that I wouldn't be at peace unless I had done what, everything that I could do to try to share my true self with her and for her to know why I have made the choices I've made, why I am who I am, and that I love her so much. And none of the choices that I've made are, you know, a contradiction of that to that love. Um, and so that so the, so the desire to write to her came from that very authentic place. Then I wanted to write a book that centered the experiences of me and and wrote about my family in a way that wasn't otherizing or exoticizing our experiences. I think one of the difficult things about growing up in as a as a racial minority is that, especially as one who you know was defined by a stereotype of the model minority, is that I was so used to triangulating my identity based on what others perceived of me and what they expected me to be. I felt like writing to my mom was the most authentic way to tell my story. So I actually wrote out letters to her and figured out all the things that I wish I could tell her that I have not been able to tell her over the years. And that is what I think really binds the book. Absolutely. After your brother died, um, and I'm so sorry for your loss, um, you did write about his passing, which you mentioned. I was definitely struck by the radicalization of thought that he had discovered online. Can you touch upon some of those issues? So I guess to speak in more a few more specific terms that yeah. um, my brother was 29 when he died and we had been estranged for two years at that point. Um, so I did not really know what was going on in his life, but we had been estranged because of his increasingly extremist views um, related to men's rights and uh, red pill. And essentially these are views that call feminism an extremist uh, hateful movement against men. I didn't know the full extent to his beliefs until probably after his death, but our relationship had become so difficult that the way he spoke to me and the things that he said, he was a stranger. He wasn't, that was not the boy that I grew up with. That was not the best friend from college that I had. I mean, we were, we were very close. He was my absolute best friend in the whole world. And I was his for most of our lives. And so to have him taken away by some of these ideologies, one of the things that I could not stop thinking about was this is not just my brother. This is, there's an epidemic um, with young men, I think with masculinity as well. And I really wanted to try to understand how, how this could happen in a family that really embodied the American dream in, many, in, in pretty much every way. 
you know, as immigrants coming into this country, my grandparents and like so many immigrants really bought into and adopted the American dream. This idea that everyone, if you work hard and you keep your head down and you succeed, you will be happy. And I think the, the, the first generation of immigrants, you know, that's, that's what they have to do to survive. Um, but in my generation, if we're able to achieve that, we're still not happy. There's this sort of existential dread, this crisis of, like, I, I, I've succeeded and yet I feel like a failure. Why is that? And it's so easy to blame ourselves for that. Um, but one of, one of the things I wanted to do in my book is show all these different forces that contribute to making us each of us feel that way and how these forces impact men and women in different ways. And I think that in my family system, I was, I was moving into that too. And I realized at a certain point that I was going to lose myself if I continue to define myself by achievement and by these expectations that are put upon me. Um, and it was my art that saved me, that led me in a different path. But for my brother, who was raised in that same household with those same expectations and also very gendered expectations of what a man is and what a woman is, went further down that path. I, I can only speculate what led him down to make the choices that he made, because I don't know. Mm. But my book is an attempt to try to understand how he got there um, and how so many of us lose people we love to these kinds of ideologies. There's a, there's a line in the book that I felt is the sadness of the book, but also the thing that may help us all. And this sentence is that I love is, it's really about the things that stand in the way of sharing the love with the people you love most. And I feel like we're so pushed to, to love these people we love, but like, what are the things in the way? Um, and that's what you've explored so beautifully. You can't cross that that river anymore because every time you nearly drown. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we have really confusing ideas about what love is and is not in society. And the truth is that, you know, I, I think I was, I was very heavily influenced by um, Bell Hooks and the book All About Love. And I think, you know, that book to me, it's, it's one that I come back to again and again because I love how Hooks artic articulates that love is, it's not a feeling, it's an action. And true love, true love is nurturing, it's connected, it, it helps us and each other embrace our authenticity. So everything that stands in the way of that kind of true connection is not actually love. It's all this other stuff. And what I, you know, what I, you know, the other thing that Hooks talks about is how scary it is to love that way because it's deeply vulnerable. Um, it's uncomfortable. Um, and it's also something we don't really know how to do very well. We're not taught how to do that. Um, what we're taught is how to sacrifice ourselves, meeting other people's needs and sacrificing our own, especially as women. Um, and I think men are taught to protect and to have to take on other people's burdens and deny their own needs, their own emotional needs. And both of these things set us up for not being able to love each other or ourselves as well as we should or can. Now, one of the things I wanted to draw the distinction of is that, that 
you can love somebody deeply and they can still not be good for your well-being. And those two things are not contradictions. And I think that's a really common experience a lot of people deal with. Probably everyone can relate to that feeling. Um, But there's so much shame around that in our culture because we feel that if we don't know how to be with somebody who we both love but both hurts us, then we are somehow failures or we're bad or we're defective. And I want people to know that that's not the case and that that limits us from being able to actually move forward in our own lives and and find people, help the people that we care about. It blocks both people in that exchange. And so, yeah, one of the things I wanted to do is be really honest about how all of this feels and plays out. And I hope that it can help people um, find a new way into these conversations. Well, the book certainly does. And what's so interesting is all the different types of conversations you'll have with people from very different points of view and with their own life experiences. So I have one last question for you. And it is, what lights you up? What lights me up? Oh, so many things. Um, You know, I, I think that joy is a choice, letting joy in. And after I wrote this book, which was very dark for me to be sitting there with all of this, I made the decision to let joy in. And some of the things that um, that really light me up are dancing. Um, and I, I love to run. So running and working out um, are just great for my mental health, honestly, and give me so much peace. Um, and still, uh, still painting and creating art. I am always trying to get deeper into that. Um, so yeah, so many things. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for chatting. And again, everyone, Prachi's book is They Called Us Exceptional and Other Lies That Raised Us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Angie. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Rodofsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.